It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. What does peace, reconciliation, and the gospel have to do with each other? Hi, I'm Nathan. And in today's Daily Thunder, we're going to be talking about the intersection between reconciliation, peace, and the triumphant gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we jump into today's Daily Thunder, I just want to remind you that we've opened up our registration for our summer discipleship training program. It begins June 12th and is five weeks of pursuing Jesus Christ, learning how to study God's word, and practically learning how to live out the Christian life. If you're desiring to grow spiritually and spend a season pursuing Jesus Christ without any distractions, please consider joining us for our five-week discipleship training program this upcoming summer. You can learn more information at ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now let's dive into today's Daily Thunder as we talk about the fact that Jesus is proclaiming peace. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. Again, we've been walking through this little section talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, I want to read from Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 14, and to go down through verse 17. Uh, So this is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. For Jesus is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus making peace. And he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. And again, this is a little bit of a review, but uh, we've been walking to this idea that here are the Jews and here are the Gentiles and they hate each other. And again, it's not just, well, we dislike you. There was a deep animosity and hatred uh, between these two groups. And isn't it amazing that what, excuse me, that what Paul is saying here in our passage is the fact that Jesus doesn't merely give peace between these groups. Jesus becomes the peace of these groups. And he's literally taking these two groups that hated each other and is bringing them into one new reality. In fact, there's what he calls one new man. In other words, there's this brand new entity that is coming out from these two groups. So in the church, there is not Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian. In heaven, we will not have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Nor will we have Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and, you know, Pentecostals. You just go down through the list. There, there's not going to be that kind of division in the heavenlies. What is there going to be? Christian which, which is an amazing reality to me that, again, that he's taking, he's removing all the, uh, all the barriers, all the dividing walls. And uh, last week we talked about the fact that this, the enmity, the dividing wall that Paul is specifically talking about, the dividing between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, was the law. And again, if you want to go back, you can listen to that. Uh, what I want to focus on this morning, though, is specifically this idea that Jesus is proclaiming peace. And uh, again, we we recognize that in verse 14, he is our peace. In verse 15, he is making peace. And we realize that's going three directions, right? He's reconciling us to God, which we'll talk about in just one second. Uh, So thereby, he's making peace between us and and himself. He's 
bringing peace even within ourselves, which is an amazing reality, that he's taking all that hostility and all the animosity and all the, the craziness within us and bringing peace. But then he's also bringing peace between us and the people around us. But as you come into verse 16 uh, and verse 17, uh, I love how he's kind of bringing a conclusion to this thought. He says in verse 16 that he, Jesus, might reconcile both of these groups to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. That in the cross, what he's doing is he's removing all the hostility, hostility and all the enmity, and he's bringing these two groups together. And the word that is used there is reconcile. Now, this may not mean anything to you, but I was getting excited with this word reconcile. Uh, this word reconcile, the word, the normal usage of this word, the word is katalasso. You don't have to memorize that, but just so you know. Uh, that's not this word, by the way, in our passage. But the normal word for reconcile is katalasso. And the word itself, listen to this, it is to change from one condition to another. It is a change of attitude or relationship. And this is the word that was often used for bringing together friends who have been estranged. That's the word katalasso. And what's really neat is this word katalasso is only used six times in the New Testament. One of those times is in 1 Corinthians 7.11, which is it's being used in the sense of reconciling a husband and his wife. So that, that's one, one of those six times. But the other five times are only found in two passages. So I, I just want to give these passages to you because I just think it is profound when you hear this language. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, this is what Paul writes. He says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified or made righteous in God's sight by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were katalosoed, so we were reconciled. So here we are, enemies of God, and we have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been katalosoed, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, which is not katalasso, but it's the noun form of that word, which that noun word is used four times. One time here and then a whole bunch of other times I'm going to read you in the other passage. So you get this idea that, uh, in, in, again, it's Romans 5, 8 through 11, <clears throat> that here we are, we're enemies of God. We're shaking our fists in God's face. And while we were enemies, what did God do? He cut a lawsuit. He, he, he brought this estrangement. Uh, he, he removed the estrangement and brought us into friendship, in harmony, in peace, in, in life, relationship with the Father, which is just an amazing thought if you, if you think about it. Uh, I found this great quote from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Uh, listen to this. this is, I just thought this was so good. The resulting paradox that God reconciles those he recognizes up to the moment of reconciliation as enemies is no greater than in the command, love your enemies. For love always treats his enemies as no enemies at all. Isn't that a cool statement? That here we are, the enemies of God, and what does reconciliation do? 
It is literally looking at the one who is your enemy. And if your desire is reconciliation because of love, then you actually see that person not as an enemy. You see that person as someone you need to bring reconciliation to so that you can have relationship. Because as long as you're an enemy, you'll never have relationship. And I just love that statement. For love always treats its enemies as no enemies at all. And if you realize, as Paul says, if we were reconciled through his death, then what on earth do you think is going to happen in us through his life? Isn't that a crazy thought? That if, if through his death upon the cross, we were who we, who we were enemies, have been reconciled in friendship with God, what is he going to do once we have the friendship? Because if that was through his death, how much more is he wanting to do through us through his life? So in that passage in Romans 5, the word kataloso is used two times, and then the noun form of that is used one time. So two of the six times that the verb is used in the New Testament shows up in, there in, in Romans chapter 5. Now, the other three times that the word kataloso shows up is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let me just read this to you, just get some context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 17 through 21, uh, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled, Cadillaso, us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is the noun form of Cadillaso. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling, Cadillaso, the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation, the noun form of Cadillaso. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God was pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be Cadillaso, reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't it amazing just to, what, what Paul's walking through is this idea that, do you realize that he has catalossoed you? And because he has reconciled you, he is then entrusted to you as an ambassador of a king, a ministry of reconciliation. That you actually have the privilege of going out into your world and saying, hey, there's reconciliation available. So because you've experienced Cadalasso, and because he has taken all of our sin and, and, and has reconciled us to the Father, then we get to have a ministry of reconciliation where we're taking his reconciliation as an ambassador, marching out into our world and offering reconciliation to the world around us. Isn't that a crazy thought? I just think that's awesome. Okay, a few of you are excited. Uh, so, thank you. <laughs> so again, the normal word is kataloso. In our passage, the word is not kataloso. The word is apakataloso. Ooh. So it's, <laughs> so it's kataloso with a prefix on it, which is the apa thing. Uh, which, when you, when you look at it, it basically just means it's not just merely reconciliation. It is a complete reconciliation. Uh, and that word, apa katalaso, is used three times in the New Testament. Uh, two of those are in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 22, 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to apokatalaso, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled apokatalaso in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So here we are, completely alienated. We're, we're enemies of God. We're full of wicked works. And yet, what has is, what is Jesus done? He has brought peace and has made this complete reconciliation between us and himself. And by the way, that word, having made peace, I, oh, that is such a, uh, wish I had time to get into it. But that word, having made peace, isn't just the word peace, it's the word peace with the Greek word poieo with it, which is this idea, it's, it's, the, it's that creative word. It's like from the insides of who you are, this peace just bubbles forth. So it's not something that he has and he's giving. The idea is more of like the peace is coming from within himself and he is creatively bringing that about in your life. That a, just, I just think that's brilliant. And that's just beautiful to me. So again, Colossians 1 has two of those apokatalaso, and then our passage has the other one. So what is, again, what is Jesus doing in our lives? He's bringing this complete reconciliation thing, that he is making peace. He's restoring all things, and that in himself, he, he's bringing together all things. So if you look at, look at our passage again, right? In verse 14, he is our peace, which is amazing. And then in verse 16, he is reconciling both of these groups to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. That literally through the cross of Christ, Jesus is bringing this complete reconciliation. Now what's really interesting is of those three times, the one here in our passage, and please don't get lost, but the one here in our passage, this apokatalaso, this world, this word is in the subjunctive. Now, if you don't know Greek, that's totally fine. The word subjunctive, it's interesting. It's the maybe, maybe not tense. It's in the realm of possibility. So this might be true. This may be not true. So this is not a command. So this is not an imperative saying, hey, be reconciled. This isn't like a, an, an indicative, which is a simple statement of fact, like, oh, we have reconciliation. This word is, you might have reconciliation. You might not have reconciliation. So let me read this again. Uh, he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. What is he doing? Uh, look at verse 15. That he's making these two into one new man, thus making peace, so that he might reconcile. Why is he doing this? So that reconciliation is actually possible. But isn't it interesting that though he makes the reconciliation possible, that doesn't mean the two groups actually experience it. Does that make any sense? Because the reality is, he is it's like he's offering it to these two groups, saying, hey, there's reconciliation. But he's not forcing them. Because you can't force reconciliation. Uh, for example, I can force you to apologize, and you can say the words, but that doesn't actually mean your heart's in it. I can say, be reconciled, but that actually doesn't mean any reconciliation has taken place. So isn't it interesting that Jesus has done all the work. 
He's accomplished everything that is needed. That there's, you need nothing outside of him for reconciliation, but you still have to choose it. And then you have to walk in that reality. I find that interesting. That again, that Jesus has done absolutely everything through the cross, but again, he can't, he can't force you to reconcile. You must want it. So here are these two groups who absolutely hate each other, and he has done everything to bring them together, but that doesn't mean they're ever going to be together unless they actually allow God to do his work in their life, to actually bring the peace, and that they may actually strive unto reconciliation. I find that interesting. Because in our world today, Jesus has done everything to bring reconciliation. He's done everything to bring peace. And yet you look around and you're like, but where is it? Well, just because it's available doesn't mean you actually are experiencing it. Right? Just like if we had a, you know, a whole stack of cookies in the back, hypothetically. Maybe some ginger cookies, right? That doesn't mean you're actually experiencing the ginger cookies. What are you going to have to do? You're going to have to eat it. So just because it's available, right, if we, if we put a stack of $100 bills out there, which I wish there was, uh, but, but if there was a stack of $100 bills, and we say, hey, by, by, all, by all means, as you leave today, please help yourself, right? That doesn't actually mean you're any richer, but it is available. And reconciliation is available to us. And yet, if we're not experiencing it, it's not because it's not available. It's not because he hasn't already done the work. It's because we are not allowing God to do something in our life to actually experience the reality of reconciliation. But you realize that the complete reconciliation is available. Now, take that whole idea and bring it into verse 17. In verse 17, Paul then says, And he, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. And again, I find it interesting that the word peace shows up two times here. That Jesus is proclaiming something. What is he proclaiming? Peace. Who is he proclaiming it to? Oh, there's two groups. Those who are far away, speaking of the Gentiles. Those who are near, speaking of the Jews. And isn't it interesting, that again, and we walk through this, but peace is not sitting on a beach in 80 degree weather, which sounds blissful right now, drinking lemonade. That's not peace, biblically. That peace, when you look at the idea of peace, uh, the Greek idea has this idea of harmony, but the Hebrew idea has this idea of wholeness or completeness. It has the idea of a removing of, uh, the, of every enemy faction. It has this idea of soundness or security or prosperity or uh, well-being or health. It's that kind of an idea, which is why they always greet each other with shalom. Why? Because they're pronouncing, hey, may the reality of peace be upon your life. That, that I want God's peace for you. So what is Jesus proclaiming? He's proclaiming peace. So get, get this progression. In verse 14, he is peace. In verse 15, he makes peace. In verse 17, he proclaims peace. And the whole undercurrent of this peace idea is the reconciliation. That why is he peace? Why is he making peace? And why is he proclaiming peace? So that he might reconcile these two groups into one. Now, this whole verse 17 thing, this proclaiming peace, is going back into Isaiah and talking, or, or it's uh, shadowing, hearkening back. I don't know what the language you want to use. Uh, but it's re a repetition of Isaiah chapter 57. 
In Isaiah 57, verses 19 through 21, God is speaking and he says, I'm creating the fruit or the message of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So it's interesting that what Paul is using is this phrase in Isaiah 57 where God is saying, hey, there's this message coming from my lips. What's the message? Peace, peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. So again, there's that same message being proclaimed. But what's interesting in the Isaiah 57 passage is it gives you the opposite. That if you don't hearken unto the message of peace, well, then you are like the wicked that are tossed in the sea because it cannot be quiet and its waters bring up mire and dirt. So isn't it interesting that if you don't experience peace, if you don't hearken the message of peace, that you then have this opposing forces pressing upon your life. And again, we, we understand that the whole tides and the waves and all that kind of stuff is, is the, you know, the moon and the earth's gravity and the wind and all this kind of stuff playing in, into it. And, and what does Isaiah say? Well, if I don't experience peace, then like I'm in the middle of the ocean and I'm being just thrown around. And isn't it interesting, at the end of the storms, all the muck and all the mire that has been brought up from the depths is thrown out onto the beaches, right? So if you, after a hurricane or after a big storm, you look at the beaches and they're all full of junk. Why? It's because that storm has brought forth junk. And Isaiah says, do you realize that's your life if you don't hearken the message of peace? That you're not only tossed around like in this storm thing, but then all this junk just is vomited up out of your life. That's a true statement. So you get this idea then that Jesus is offering to calm the seas and bring peace. And by the way, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus calmed the seas. Because I think it's a fun point back to this passage. That here he is in the, on the Sea of Galilee in this big storm, and what does he do? He stands up and says, peace. Peace be still. And he's bringing, he's proclaiming peace in the midst of this turbulent thing. And he's settling it, which is what he wants to do in our life. That he is proclaiming peace. Now, I love this idea that in our passage, this proclamation of peace is presented to the same groups. Both groups get the exact same message. Which tells you what? Apparently, they both need it. See, the Jews thought they had salvation. Why? Because they had the law. And yet Romans chapter 2 and 3 tells us they needed salvation because the law cannot save you. What saves you? Jesus, the one who is peace. And so you get this idea then that the, though the Jews thought they had all that they needed, they were still lacking something. So what did Jesus do? He proclaimed peace to them. Well, Gentiles, they don't even have the law. We need peace. So what did Jesus give us? Peace. So whether you're the most intellectual Pharisee or whether you're the most heathen Gentile, the message is the same. You need Jesus. In fact, I love the fact that Paul says that in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst or the chief. 
Paul is an educated Pharisee. And he says, I need salvation just as much as the greatest hinner, a heathen or sinner. Isn't it interesting that in the church today, a lot of times we had the same mentality that the, that the Jews had back then? See, the Jews presumed because they had the law, they were, they, were, they were sufficient, they were fine, they were saved. In our modern day, it's like, well, I go to church, so I'm fine. You know, hey, I, I know the Sunday school lessons, I, I know the songs. But the reality is, is if you grow up in church, you need salvation just as much as the greatest heathen. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He said, to be an inch outside the kingdom is no advantage over the man who is a thousand miles away from being in the kingdom. Peace is needed by all. That's a good statement. So what is Jesus doing? He's proclaiming peace. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at, Jesus stands up and says, peace. Peace is offered. Again, what are we talking about peace? We're talking about this wholeness, this completeness, this removal of enemy faction. Now, I love, if you turn a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52 verse 7 is talking about this proclamation of peace. But in the proclamation of peace, it's given a very descriptive term about what this proclamation of peace is going to look like. So in Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So here's a statement of desire and wonder and just this overwhelming reality. And what's, what's the reality? That those who proclaim peace, those who preach good news, their feet are beautiful. By the way, that word beautiful means adorned, beautiful, or crowned. That those who are bringing glad tidings, which sounds like a Christmas song, right? But, but those who bring good news, right? The gospel, that's what the word good news, or the word gospel means, right? It's good news. Euangelion, it's good news. It's this great message, that those who preach good news, those who bring glad tidings, those who proclaim peace, their feet are beautiful. Do you know how beautiful Jesus' feet is? They are adorned. They are crowned. They are beautiful. And then he says in our passage, and he came and he proclaimed peace. To you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That word there, by the way, proclaimed or preached in our passage is euangelizo, which is similar to euangelion. So euangelion, again, is the gospel or the good news. Euangelizo means to proclaim that. It's to proclaim good news. So Jesus is proclaiming good news of what? Peace. And again, I keep going through this, but what is the peace he's proclaiming? It's a removal of enemy faction. It's a, it's a message of harmony. It's a message of completeness. It's a message of soundness. It's, it's a message of wholeness. It's a message of security. Isn't it interesting that Jesus wants to calm the storms of our lives? But even if he doesn't calm the actual storm, you realize that he's wanting to give us this undaunted courage and confidence amidst the storms. Why? Because he is the peace. Again, this is not some abstract thing that he's giving us. He is this. 
right? He doesn't merely give peace. He is peace. And this peace that he is proclaiming, you realize, is a proclamation of victory and triumph. This isn't like, oh, well, peace sounds like this cute, fluffy thing. It's like, oh, it's cute. No, peace is strong and victorious. Peace is is triumph. Peace is, hey, the enemy has no ability to conquer. Peace is, hey, the enemy has been crushed underneath my feet. The, 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 The message of peace is, hey, you can walk in victory and triumph. And we could go through a whole bunch of passages. I'll just give you two. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And I look at that list going, man, that's a lot of stuff. That could cause problems. <laughs> like nakedness, that, that's a huge problem. Uh, swords, tribulation, distress. All that stuff is a problem. Right? But hey, is that going to separate us? No. And then in verse 37, he answers, says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is that a message of? Peace. It's a message of victory and triumph and hope. I love Romans chapter 6, verses 11. says, Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. Do, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Hey, you can walk in freedom. You can live in triumph. You don't have to keep living under the tyranny of sin any longer. What is that? That's peace. And that is the message that he is proclaiming. It's not some weak little message. This is a message of conquering. This is a message of triumph. This is a message of hope. This is a message of joy. This is a message of freedom. And so when it says that he proclaimed peace, it's not just, yes, it's, a, it's the reconciliation thing, but what is he doing? He's conquering evil. He's conquering sin so that we might live as we ought. Now, are you going to live it out perfectly? I don't know, but we have an advocate. And you have given, you've been given all things to do this properly. You can live like a Christian, which is a conqueror, which is a victor, someone who actually walks in triumph. <clears throat> and those who proclaim that message, their feet are beautiful. Primarily Jesus. But if I can bring a personal application, you realize again, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul uses that same language in Romans chapter 10 in verses 13 through 15 of Romans 10. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul says, do you know how your feet look when you proclaim salvation and the good news of the gospel? They look beautiful. Now, if you take all of that and come into Ephesians chapter 6, I find it interesting that Paul is talking about the fact that, hey, we are in this spiritual battle. And in the midst of this big spiritual battle, he says, take up the whole armor of God. Why? So that we should be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then one of the pieces of armor that we are to wear in verse 15, he says, and shod your shoes or your feet, uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So there is something that we are wearing on our feet. What is it? Shoes, which are what? The gospel of peace. Now, of all the pieces of armor, that sounds the weakest. I mean, a shield, that's important. Swords, that's important. A helmet, that makes sense to me. A breastplate, well, of course. But then shoes of peace, it's like, come on. Give me shoes of like steel, of conquering ability. But I think the reason we think it's weak is because we actually miss the significance What are the shoes of the gospel of peace? It's triumph. That all things have been placed underneath the feet of Jesus. That that, that the enemy has no ability to stand underneath the feet of Jesus. Uh, That when the enemy is beneath our feet, there is peace. That again, there's this removal of every enemy faction idea. And isn't it interesting that the gospel will set men and women free of every faction, every enemy device, that the weapons of our warfare are able to pull down the strongholds of the enemy. What is that? That's peace. And when you begin to look at that trajectory throughout Scripture, you realize this idea of shoes and feet, they are found everywhere. I mean, there's this, there's this undercurrent. Uh, for example, in Revelation, <clears throat> it's talking about Jesus in Revelation 1.15 and verse 18. It says, His, Jesus' feet, were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, uh, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. That word burnished bronze or burnished brass, uh, brass uh, in, in the Greek mentality, the idea is that when bronze is in the middle of the fire, it turns bright white. And then it says it's glowing. But bronze in the Jewish mind is a sign of judgment. So it's interesting that here is his feet, and they are bright white, and what are they a sign of? Conquering, judgment, victory. Uh, Again, it has this idea of strength. So when you go back into Genesis chapter 3, the first prophecy is given of Jesus. So Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but... You're going to stomp on his head. What? He's going to be placed underneath your feet. That there's going to be judgment given. Why? Because his feet are burnished bronze. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> so in chapter 3 of Genesis then, sin comes in. And the moment, think about this, the moment that sin comes in, immediately God gives his answer, which is what? Jesus is going to crush your head. I think that's awesome. Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace, get this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do you get this tone? That there is this shoes of peace. What is it? Conquering strength, victory, judgment, the reality of the gospel. 2 Samuel 22.10, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Deuteronomy 33, verses 24 through 25. It's speaking of Asher, the tribe of Asher, but it becomes a foreshadow of what we have in Jesus. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy 33, And of Asher, he said, Let him dip his foot in oil. Your shoes shall be iron and bronze. And as your days, so shall your strength be. That Asher's shoes, which, again, I think it's just a picture of the fact that we are covered with Jesus. It's, it's a picture of his conquering victory. What are his shoes? It's iron and bronze. And those feet are dipped in oil. Which, if you understand Old Testament imagery, it's a great picture of the Holy Spirit. Song of Solomon 7.1. Here's Solomon talking to the bride. And Solomon says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. So here's the bride of Christ. And she has, according to the groom, beautiful feet in sandals. But what are those sandals made out of? Iron and brass. That here they are. They're, they're literally bright white. It's a sign of victory, of strength, of judgment. And you realize we are the body of Christ, which means we are his feet. So he is peace, he is making peace, and he's the one proclaiming peace. Why? To bring reconciliation. But I have reconciliation in him, which means what? I get to be an ambassador within a ministry of reconciliation. So I get to go out into my world as his feet. And what do I get to do? Proclaim peace. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not peace. I don't have peace in the sense that it's of me. But you realize we get the privilege of walking out and saying, hey, there's hope. There is freedom. Hey, be reconciled unto God. There is salvation. Hey, the gospel is the reality. You experience it. That he has done all things that you need for life and godliness. Why would you want to keep living in your junk? Why would you want to keep living in your sin when freedom is available? And literally, our feet are shod with the gospel of peace, which is not something that's weak. It's one of the strongest, victorious things on planet Earth. What is it? It's peace. And we have the privilege of being the hands and the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus to our world, with a ministry of reconciliation, saying, do you know what he wants to do in you? He wants complete reconciliation with you. But you have to choose this thing. Hey, you've got to believe. You've got to get on, get God. Get in on this thing. Will you experience it? And wouldn't it be neat if, if he's peace and he's making peace and proclaiming peace, but then he lives inside of you through his spirit, which means what does he want to do inside of you? Make peace. Proclaim peace because he is peace. Does that describe our lives? And you realize the only way I can proclaim peace is i got to first experience peace. And again, as we've talked in, the, in previous sessions, we got to experience peace foremost with Jesus. But then he wants to bring peace in our own lives, and he wants to bring peace in the lives between us and, and the, those around us. But as we begin to experience his peace, you won't be able to help yourself but proclaim peace and be a demonstration and declaration of the gospel.
which again is not something weak. Good news actually is a bad term because good in our, our terminology is just like, eh. How's your day? Good. When, when, the, when the writers of the, of the New Testament were writing, they put good news. This was like a superlative of all superlative words. Like this isn't just good. This is phenomenal. This is bodacious. This is phantasmagorical. This is tubular. I mean, this is terrific. This is rad. This, this is church. I mean, this, this thing is whatever, whatever superlative you want to pick. That that's the reality of the gospel that we're proclaiming. Why? Because it changes everything. It changes everything. And we have the privilege of being ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation for our king. Why would we want to hold that in? Why would we want to keep that to ourselves? And why, we, why wouldn't we want to experience that to the fullness? Our feet are covered with the gospel of peace. They are shoes of iron and brass, of victory, of triumph. Because in Christ you are more than a conqueror. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Lord, I don't want to just experience the fullness of peace. Lord, I want to be a proclaimer of peace. Lord, what would it look like if I realized that our feet, my feet, truly were shod with the gospel of peace? That I do have boots on there boots of iron and brass. They're bright white. And it's a message of victory, of triumph. And as I go out to my world, not only am I to proclaim peace, but I am to demonstrate peace. That I am to be proclaiming that there is hope, that there is freedom, that there is triumph. That we don't have to live under the tyranny of sin. I don't have to keep living in addiction. I don't have to keep living in the junk of this world. Lord, what an incredible message that not only we get to experience, but we get to proclaim. So Lord, I pray that we would experience the reality of reconciliation and all that you're wanting to do, not just between us individually and you, but us with each other. That, that you're wanting reconciliation to take place. That your body is not split up in a bunch of divisions. You have one body that is unified with Jesus. He is the head. He is the focus. Lord, what would it look like if there really was reconciliation in the body of Christ today? What would it look like if there was reconciliation in our homes? What if there was reconciliation in our friendships? What if there was reconciliation in this world? And Lord, that is only ever going to come about because you, yourself, through the cross, brought reconciliation. Programs can't pull this off. Techniques can't pull this off. It is you. Lord, could you somehow implant within our minds that we have a ministry of reconciliation? That we get to be ambassadors of a king? That we're not coming up with a message? That we're not coming up with the nuances? That that you have proclaimed it and we are merely the ones who take the message and bring your message to the world? Lord, what would it look like if we, if we truly realized that the message that we are proclaiming is victorious? That, that the enemy cannot stand against the gospel because it is in the gospel that he is conquered through the cross. So Lord, you have proclaimed peace. 
to those who are far off and those, to, those who are near. So Lord, I pray that we, as your children, would experience the reality and the fullness of your peace. But Lord, because you live inside of us, could you begin to proclaim peace through us? May we take your peace and your life and the reality of the gospel and may that be the, the song on our lips, the tone of our lives, the message that we are constantly proclaiming. Beloved Jesus, thank you for such an amazing reality and opportunity and responsibility. Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.